0: Okay, one minute past the hour. Thanks for joining, everybody. As a reminder, I mentioned last week, but just in case you didn't hear, this will be the final Bible study for the year 2022. Next Saturday is Christmas Eve. The following Saturday is New Year's Eve. And so we will be off for the next two Saturdays, and we will resume as we are usually scheduled on Saturday, January 7th, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Appreciate your patience with the break, but of course, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year in the meantime, and we have our usual hour lesson and discussion tonight. So, take it away, Robert.
1: All right. Well, let's begin with the scripture reading. When Jesus had finished
2: saying these things, he looked upward to heaven and said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you just as you have given him authority over all humanity, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. I glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me at your side with the glory I had with you before the world was created. I have revealed your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They belong to you, and you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they understand that everything you have given me comes from you, because I have given them the words that you have given me. They accepted them and really understand that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I am praying on behalf of them. I am not praying on behalf of the world but on behalf of those you have given me, because they belong to you. Everything I have belongs to you, and everything you have belongs to me, and I have been glorified by them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them safe in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one, just as we are one. When I was with them, I kept them safe, and watched over them in your name that you have given me. Not one of them was lost, except the one destined for destruction, so that the Scripture could be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and I am saying these things in the world, so they may experience my joy completed in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, so I sent them into the world, and I set myself apart on their behalf, so that they too may be truly set apart. I am not praying only on their behalf, but also on behalf of those who believe in Me through their testimony, that they will all be one, just as You, Father, are in Me and I am in You. I pray that they will be in Us, so that the world will believe that You sent Me. The glory You gave to Me I have given to them, that they may be one, just as We are one. I in them, and You in Me, that they may be completely one so that the world will know that you sent me, and you have loved them just as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they can see my glory that you gave me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, even if the world does not know you, I know you, and these men know that you sent me. I made known your name to them, and I will continue to make it known, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. The Gospel of John, Chapter 17.
1: Okay, well, let's jump right into it. I want to start out by pointing out a few things that are certainly not, you know, key to this passage, but I think they're important to just know Uh, Chapters 13 through 17, um, if you try to fit those chapters into a literary genre, they seem to resemble a last will and testament. Okay, what I will just refer to as a testament. Um, Nowadays, we actually call it a will, (laughs) but right, a testament is actually a a better word. Um, So, right, a testament is what you do when you're about to die and you are deciding what's going to happen to your stuff. Uh, what instructions do you leave to those who will be left after you, that kind of thing. In um, chapter 17, it particularly resembles a testament, a last will and testament, because those would normally, at the time, not not nowadays, but at the time, they would be full of these blessings and wish prayers. So uh, chapter 17 really sounds like somebody who is about to die saying goodbye in saying, like I said, these kind of blessings and wish prayers. Now, am I trying to make some theological point? Not not at all. I just pointed out to say there is a somber tone to this chapter that we might not pick up on, um, you know, because we're not reading in the, in the original language and, and, you know, whatever. Um, but it is a very somber chapter. Then another detail that comes up at the very beginning of the chapter is that When Jesus begins to pray, uh, his mannerisms would seem really strange to us. He looks upward to heaven, and uh, presumably he would lift his hands. Nowadays, in our culture, and really in most cultures, uh, modern cultures, I mean, we would pray uh, with our head probably looking down, our eyes are probably closed, our hands are together, and uh, probably not raised up. At the time when somebody prayed, they would probably look up to heaven, their eyes would be open, their hands would be up with their palms facing up, uh, a little bit like the picture that I posted on the blog, if you get to see it. Um, In a lot of the art that we see of Jesus praying, uh, we, we always see him kneeling down with his hands together, you know, eyes closed, looking down, like we would pray today. Well, that's not how they prayed back in the day, or not generally. I'm not saying they never prayed their face down but this was the more common style um so again just a, a, a little detail that people can pray in different ways and that is absolutely fine okay now jumping more into the meat of this passage in this prayer jesus fulfills multiple roles that come from the old testament now this passage that we read is often called the high priestly prayer alluding of course to Jesus fulfilling the role of the high priest but that's really not the only role and perhaps not even the main one this prayer most resembles a patriarchal a patriarchal blessing okay remember that the Israelites had a patriarchal society, so they would be like the the oldest male in the family would be the leader, and he would make all the big decisions. And as he died, he would tell the family, you know, hey, do this, do that, and so forth. Um, well, one of the great patriarchs is Moses, right? Moses has a similar, not identical by any means, but a similar prayer uh, to what Jesus is praying here. Right after the golden calf incident, and I know that calling it an incident is quite an understatement. Um, and you know, if you're not familiar, Moses is up on the mountain, he's receiving the words of God, he's actually getting the Ten Commandments, but he takes too long. So the people down at the bottom of the mountain, they decide, hey, Moses is taking a really long time. We need an idol, we need it now, and the people just straight up start worshiping a golden calf. Okay. It's uh, it's one of the low points in the story, to put it mildly. Well, God says, I'm done with y'all. I'm just done. Um, I will take you to the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. Okay. And Moses intercedes for the people of Israel. Okay. So Moses uh, becomes this go-between where he begs God for mercy on the people of God, on the Israelites. And um, I, I, I posted the the full passage you know on the blog if you're interested but i'm just going to read the key parts particularly for the sake of time um where where moses says you know if if your presence does not go with us then do not take us up from here um you know please be merciful please stay with us and if you will not be with us then what's the point of doing anything and the lord responds favorably He says, I will do what you have requested. For I for uh for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And then Moses responds, Show me your glory. Okay. Now, this is actually quite similar to what Jesus is doing in chapter 17, where Jesus is saying, Hey, be you know, Father, be merciful, uh, be kind, show favor to my disciples, who are by extension your disciples. And then through our unity, show them my glory, which is your glory, right? They're, they're, everything kind of runs together in this chapter because of this theme of unity. Um, so it, we are seeing Jesus as a greater Moses. Then um, Jesus is also taking the role of the high priest. Of like, like I mentioned, normally this passage would be known as the high priestly prayer. So um, and I we are by no means just making an inference here that Jesus occupies the office or fulfills the role of the high priest. This is made this is made explicit in Scripture, particularly in the book of Hebrews. Uh, like you could look at Hebrews chapter 2. Um, now for this to really click with us, I think we need to understand a little bit more about the role of the high priest. And i am going to get by the way to the text in chapter 17 but this is really important background if we want to really grasp the meaning of what's going on them as you guys might remember in the old testament there was a sacrificial system and and these sacrifices were meant to atone for the sins of the people and and really a, a number of other things there were sacrifices for more than just atonement but once a year, the high priest, and he was like the boss of all the other priests, he would go into the Holy of Holies, which it was, it was a part of the temple that only he could go into, nobody else, and just on the one day of the year. And he would make a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people and himself. Okay. Now, uh, this this guy had to be quote-unquote, perfect in the sense that he could have no blemish, he could have actually no physical blemish, but of course he was not perfect morally, which is why he also had to make atonement for himself, and he had uh, the role also of communicating the will of God to the people, okay? Uh, We see this in a few places in the Old Testament, and in, in John chapter 11, we also see a reference to the high priest as having a prophetic voice. So the high priest is to go between the people and God. Okay? It, is, it is the high priest who mediates between the two, trying to seek the favor of God towards the people. Um, for example, I'm going to read the short prayer. This is the prayer that God tells the high priest to pray. It is the following. It says, the Lord bless you and protect you. So again, imagine the high priest telling the people, The Lord bless you and protect you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, that actually sounds strikingly similar to what Jesus is praying for in chapter 17. And finally, um, who else interceded for the people? Who else had this inter- intercessory role, and that would be the prophets. Now, with the prophets, um there's there's kind of a looser analogy going on here. The prophets generally had the job of receiving the word of God and telling the people the truth, which Jesus certainly did that, not only in word but indeed, right? Jesus said, "Hey, I'm a, I'm not just telling you about God. I am God, and so I reveal His full glory, like His full person." Um, so certainly Jesus is fulfilling the role of the prophets in that sense. But also when the prophets, when the prophets would receive really bad news, right? Because God would tell a prophet, for example, Amos, hey, I'm gonna do this terrible thing to the Israelites. The prophets would sometimes respond, Oh no, please relent. Please do not do this. And the Lord sometimes would relent. Um the probably the the most clear example of this is is in amos uh, chapter 7 verses 1 through 6 and i'll paraphrase here but the lord tells amos i'm going to consume all the crops all their crops i'm going to send locusts in and i will devastate them and amos says sovereign lord forgive israel how can jacob the israelites survive this um and so the lord decides not to do this Well, do we see some of this in chapter 17? Well, of course, Jesus knows that the world will hate his people, you know, his followers. And so Jesus will also take up this role and say, Lord, relent, Lord, protect them. Okay. Um, Now, again, you may think this background is unnecessary, and, and perhaps it is. I mean, you can totally read chapter 17 and not think about this. But, um, It's important for us to see that jesus here is taking this leadership role that kind of encompasses everything the the role of the patriarch the role of the prophet the role of the high priest and as he takes on all of these roles he's also getting ready to depart so it makes this goodbye very dramatic right and unnerving unnerving for the people who are there going we're losing everything we're losing our patriarch we're losing our high priest we're losing our prophet we're losing it all um so um this is certainly background that that would have been in the listeners minds okay so now let's get to the text itself this prayer because this whole chapter is one prayer can be divided roughly into three sections the first five verses is jesus praying for himself okay Then he will shift to praying for his current disciples. We could think of the 12, although it probably encompassed a few more people than the 12. And then Jesus will pray for the future disciples, starting in verse 20. Okay, so we see very strongly this theme of mutual glorification, right? Where Jesus says, glorify me that I may glorify you. The father and the son are tied at the hip and and so you know again jesus has glorified me that you may be glorified we have seen this all throughout the gospel of john you might actually remember in chapter 12 um when jesus uses the metaphor of a kernel of wheat so he says the time has come for the son of man to be glorified i tell you the solemn truth unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies it remains by itself alone but if it dies it produces much grain and then it goes on and on and on and it says father deliver or sorry he says and what should i say father deliver me from this hour no but for this very reason i have come to this hour father glorify your name Right. So notice that passage started with the time has come for the son of man to be glorified, Jesus, and it ends with Father, glorify your name. These two things are inextricably inextricably connected. Um, this was also a common theme in the Old Testament where uh, God would glorify himself by glorifying Israel, okay, by honoring Israel. Well, but at the same time that we read this idea of mutual glorification, I think that we should be struck by really how offensive this is, because how will Jesus be glorified? He will be glorified through crucifixion, which is the most shameful punishment that somebody could receive. Now, we are so used to the story, we have heard it so many times, that it doesn't It doesn't impact us at all, right? It just doesn't do it for us. It's like, yeah, of course, this is how the story goes. Um, But that is a real shame because it should be quite powerful to us when we see Jesus going, Father, glorify me. But what Jesus is meaning by that is, Father, let them crucify me. It it really is, again, quite a shocking thing. Um, I'm going to read a quote here by Tom Holland. Now, I mean Tom Holland, the historian, not Spider-Man. Okay. Uh, i i'm not gonna reduce myself to movie quotes actually i shouldn't say that i might in the future but at any rate um he this is a quote from tom holland he says we preach christ uh, we preach christ crucified saint paul declared unto the jews a stumbling block and unto the greeks foolishness he was right nothing could have run more counter to the most profoundly held assumptions of paul's contemporaries jews or Greeks, romans the notion that a god might have suffered torture and death on a cross was so shocking as to appear repulsive. Familiarity with the biblical narrative of the crucifixion has dulled our senses of just how completely novel a deity Christ was. In the ancient world, it was the role of gods who laid claim to ruling the universe to uphold its order by inflicting punishment, not to suffer it themselves. Okay, so there is this, uh, certainly, the shock factor. To the first five verses of this prayer um a few other details in the first five verses that we might note is that jesus refers to himself as having authority over uh, all humanity or if you're reading a more literal translation it may say over all flesh because that is what it says literally in greek but it does mean over all humanity or all people um this is an attribute that only god had so it. It is a strong sign of uh, the deity of Jesus. Um, but it's also a very powerful restatement of some prior teachings, right? In the past, uh, like in John chapter 3, we have read, the Father loves the Son and has placed all things under his under his authority. When we, when we say all things, we might not see ourselves in all things, you know. But Jesus here is making it clear, all things include all people. He's making a claim of authority. Another detail in, the, in the, the first five verses is this idea of eternal life. Jesus says, in what I think is quite a striking statement, that eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus. Now, um, we know that the Jews interpreted eternal life as something literal. It's actually being alive bodily. Forever, um, so this statement is clearly, um, you know, metaphorical or or slightly poetic. Um, is it, eternal life does not encompass knowledge alone, although there's been a number of heresies in the past, particularly by the Gnostics, who did say such a thing. Uh, but again, that just shows, um, you know, a, a lack of knowledge of what what Jews meant by eternal life, which, like I said, was quite literal. Um, but I'm by no means trying to downplay this statement. Instead, what, what I'm trying to get to is that it, it shows how connected eternal life is to knowing God, to having this intimate connection with God. If you don't have one, you don't have the other. Uh, there is no other way. And even through this prayer, it, it comes through explicitly then in verse six jesus switches gears a little bit and he starts praying for his current disciples again when i say current disciples you could think of the 12 but um jesus had other followers already at that time right and, and i don't think there's any reason to think that the prayer is limited although in, in one part of the blog i do refer to 12 disciples perhaps i i shouldn't have but at any rate um The, that section of the prayer begins by a statement that the uh, the disciples, they belong to God, right? And we should stop and think about that statement for at least a little bit. All things belong to God, right? God created all things. All things are His. All things belong to Him. So to say that, to, to point that out, it, that statement probably has... A meaning that goes beyond that, beyond just the the general sense in which everything belongs to God. Otherwise, there's really no point to saying such a thing. Um, now, in what sense the disciples belonged to the Father before they were, in a sense, turned over to the Son? That is the subject of of much debate. A lot of your theological assumptions are going to come in, but uh, we could think of a couple of options. Perhaps the disciples were part of the remnant that you know the few Jews who were still faithful to God that they still earnestly believed in God and because in that sense they belonged to God they recognized his voice right think of the parable in John chapter 10 where Jesus says my sheep listen to my voice right and if you guys remember that session uh that very much makes sense. The sheep of a shepherd would get used to him and would know him and would follow his instructions, right? And so perhaps the disciples were already the sheep of God. They were faithful believers. So when Jesus came, they recognized him. Um, or perhaps there was really nothing special about the disciples in any way, shape or form, not even earnest faith. And these are just the people that God chose to put in the right place in the right time so that they would hear the words of Jesus and follow him. Um, and that's that just other options you could consider Um, but at any rate I I wanted to to bring that up um, and in by this point in the story in chapter 17 Jesus does make clear these disciples you have given me they have come to believe right they believe that I am who I say I am they believe that my words come from you and that they are true right in the text the exact quote is they accepted them meaning they accepted my words um the the part of this is a little bit shocking is that although the disciples have come to believe in Jesus they've come to believe in his words they will still desert him here in just a chapter or so in the story i mean um so that you know that's what's going on there and i'm sorry if today my my lesson plan seems a bit this you know, disorganized, but this prayer has like a lot of little things. So I'm (laughs) I'm jumping from one thing to the next, to the next. Um, so, uh, but stick with me and, and we're about to get into some, some bigger themes. Then Jesus prays for their, for their safety as he says, father, I am leaving and I am, I am effectively returning them to your custody. Right. Um, he says while i was on earth i kept him safe i kept him well but i am leaving so father please you do that and of course i'm paraphrasing now um what is this safety really about and i'm sure that i'm going to get into a little bit of hot water here uh, but i'm gonna i'm gonna go for it and then you know at the end of the session you guys can can totally come after me that's always fair game um, certainly we have seen a theme of persecution in the prior chapters, and it is alluded to in this chapter, particularly in verse 14, okay? So, clearly, to some extent, the safety that Jesus is praying for is a, uh, very, like, real physical safety, I suppose, is what I mean by that. Um, but what are the, what are the situations that Jesus is bringing up, right? He says things like, uh you know keep them safe so that they may be one just as we are one right keep them safe so that they may stay united as opposed to what as supposed as opposed to the one who was lost right who was destined for destruction um or he says you know keep them safe set them apart in the truth in the chapter, there's allusion after allusion after allusion to keeping them in the faith, keeping them in the church, keeping them as part of the group, um, right? And and so I think, and I'm not saying that this is the exclusive focus of the passage, but it certainly is a big focus of it. It's Jesus saying, keep them in the faith, keep them from apostasy. Um, and that to me that 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 is actually uh it, it makes this even more dramatic than than only thinking of physical safety which again is also a part of this passage i'm not saying that it isn't but if you also add this danger of leaving the faith of falling away then oh my goodness the the you know the the dangers have escalated we see this theme in the letters of john as well okay i'm going to read one passage from first john children it is the last hour and just as you heard that the antichrist is coming so now many antichrists have appeared we know from this that it is the last hour they went out from us but they did not really belong to us and then it goes on right john here is explicitly talking about these antichrists these people who were with them and left them okay um so the, this is a concern in the community of John. It's something that from his writings happened often. How often? Of course, I have no way of knowing, but at least often enough that he wrote about it. Um, so there is this huge danger that the opposition of the world, that the work of the devil will make them fall away. And Jesus is saying, keep them safe, keep them united, keep them in the truth. It really is quite powerful. And, and if we believe that, you know, if we believe this stuff, if we believe that God is real and all that stuff, well, then it's quite terrifying as well. How, um, what, what the outcome could be? That's what I mean. And then, then Jesus goes on to explain. Look, they are in the world, but they're not of the world this is a common mantra uh, among christians right we're in the world but we're not of the world and when i say it's a common mantra a common thing we say i'm not by any means criticizing that it's very true it's found almost word for word in this chapter of john and notice that jesus does not pray that believers be removed from the world right jesus could have prayed that jesus could have prayed something like father give them their own nation or father rapture them into the heavens uh, certainly those are possibilities but that was not the prayer in fact Jesus says in this is a quote I am not asking you to take them out of the world but keep them safe from the evil one so the believers of Jesus are to stay in the world but hopefully they're to be kept safe from the evil one uh, you know they're kept in the truth as in verse 17 of this chapter. Uh, this is reminiscent of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, for example, out of Matthew 6, 13, when it says, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Okay. Deliver us. So do not lead us into temptation. Do not let us fall into into these pitfalls. Um. Now, here's where I'm going to go off script just for a little bit. And, and what I mean by that is I, I could just kind of stick with this prayer and in. in And just move on and and stay at this very kind of high level but how does this look in practice right how are we in the world but not of the world in practice well probably one of the best examples of this philosophy being applied would be found in one of paul's letters this is in first corinthians 5 and i'm going to read this and now of course if anybody wants to we can talk about this passage more at this point i just want to offer it as an example as a practical application of what we're reading Um, so it reads as follows i wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people in no way did i mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers and idolaters since you would then have to go out of the world But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who calls himself a Christian who is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or verbally abusive or a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what do I have to do with judging those outside? Are you not to judge those inside? But God will judge those outside. Remove the evil person from among you. Okay. So notice that Paul here is using the exact same theology. Paul is saying, look. You, you don't have to separate yourself from the world and, and people in the world are going to do wild things and bad things and all that. But what is that to us? We have to remain in the world, of course, not engage in those things. Um, and then in that passage, of course, the, the main issue is, you know, uh, if you're going to separate yourself from someone, separate yourself from someone, who claims to be in the community and engages in those behaviors. But if they're of the world, hey, that's always going to be the case. As long as you stay in the world, you're going to be near people who engage in all sorts of bad behaviors. Um, so I hope that application, you know, I don't know, helps, drives the point home on, on what Jesus is teaching here or praying about, I ought to say. And finally, um, Starting in verse 20, Jesus begins to pray for future disciples. I I think the first remarkable thing here is this assumption that more believers will come from the testimony of the current believers. And, And you may think, well, that's not surprising or shocking at all. But I mean, Jesus could have set this up in different ways uh right he could appear to every single person alive or something of the sort but no the the assumption and and therefore the teaching here is. people will come to know jesus through the testimony of the current believers that is how this message will proceed forward and is very much what happened i mean you might or might not believe in the bible but at least it's an accurate description of what happened in fact throughout the gospel of john particularly these last chapters we see a timeline or a prediction of events that is very accurate and is quite clear jesus will submit to his persecutors and be killed this sacrifice will glorify himself and god Uh, jesus then will be gone from the disciples quote for a little while then jesus will appear to them quote for a little while and Jesus will send another advocate to play the role of Jesus to his disciples. And then future disciples will be made through the testimony of the current disciples. And we will see all that come to pass by the end of the book of John. And then if we continue say reading the book of Acts, we certainly will see this timeline fulfilled. Um, now, the what i think is 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 most shocking about this prayer for future believers is that there is no i would say distinction of of blessings if we want to call it between the current disciples and then the future disciples what i mean by that is that we we might kind of be tempted to to glorify the original disciples particularly the 12 and say well they are supposed to have this incredible unity among themselves and with god right they are supposed to do that but we we come later we're not part of the deal or like we're part of the deal to some lesser extent and that is not at all what we see in this prayer right jesus makes it infinitely clear that future believers essentially us we are supposed to demonstrate the same unity right the same unity uh with each other as believers and with god Um, as the original disciples did. So, sure, we come later, but we are not lesser in the Christian life that we ought to demonstrate. Now, the the other thing that I think is is, uh, remarkable here is how this unity that I am describing, what it is supposed to do. Um, Because in... You know in verses back to back jesus says future will future believers right they will come to faith through the testimony of current believers and then literally next verse jesus says through this unity uh people in the the, the world will believe that god sent jesus another way of saying people will come to believe it is through unity now That should make us stop and think right it's like jesus you literally just said it is through testimony that will that people will come to believe and then the verse after you say it is through unity that people will come to believe then which one is it now of course you know that i'm I'm kind of setting up a a false dichotomy here is is both and in fact this unity among christians and the unity among christians and god it is a key part of that testimony it is explicit in the text this is not me being overly spiritual or making some inference and in fact this theme of unity being a key part of the testimony is found all throughout john's letters i mean and i mean all throughout you can hardly read a section of one of john's letters without running into this theme. um which really should make us think right or like if, if you are a believer what are we displaying this unity are we displaying this unity because it's key it's key to our testimony explicitly so in the text there, there's really no two ways about that and and this is not some like theological debate that christians have among each other we just i just wonder if in practice uh, this is really happening well uh to to drive this last point home let me show you a comparison that that should make us think. In chapter 17, and this is going to be a direct quote from chapter 17. It says, I am not praying only on their behalf, but also on behalf of those who believe in me through their testimony, that they will all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. I pray that they will be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Okay. Notice the unity will make it so that they will believe they will the world will the world will believe that God sent Jesus okay we have seen that identical language before when when Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead I will read that so they took away the stone Jesus looked upward and said father I thank you that you have listened to me I knew that you always listened to me but I said this for the sake of the crowd standing around here that they may believe that you sent me When he had said this, he shouted in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, right? So our unity should show Christ as much as literally raising somebody from the dead. That's quite the tall order. And finally, um, I know I'm about a minute here over my time, but this is my last point. The prayer ends with the idea of love and it is the highest form of love. In verses 23 and verses 26, what is it that we read we actually read that god has loved us just as god has loved jesus and that is explicit in verse 23 that's not me exaggerating or paraphrasing or anything of the sort um and that again should give us pause uh, right if we believe that jesus is one with god so they have this perfect love and god is love so think of a perfect being in his perfect love perfectly loving himself um we get to participate in that love not in a lesser form of it but in that very thing um, so this this last will i'm sorry the uh this last will and testimony that jesus is you know doing here or writing speaking i ought to say it's effectively signed with the words you know in the utmost love and that's where the chapter ends and it moves over to the passion of the christ where he will be crucified and that's that's sort of what I have for tonight. Matt, if you wanna open it up to questions or comments. Sure, thanks Robert. As
0: always, if you have a question or comment, anything you'd like to contribute to the discussion, just write the word question in the chat and I'll be happy to bring you in. We'll allow everyone a few minutes to do that. Uh, as we wait, I got, uh, what stuck in my mind was this concept of glorification through humiliation. Uh, a theme that you identified. And often in this study, uh, we've discussed terms or phrases that don't necessarily mean in the scriptural context, what they mean in the modern context or the way that we use them conversationally. Is that the case with the word humiliation here? Or is the modern understanding correct? I guess what gets stuck for me is how could be some, how could something be glorifying and humiliating simultaneously? because humiliation has like a negative embarrassment. They strike me as opposites rather than something that could happen simultaneously.
1: Yeah, I, uh, this is something that people have written a lot about, often very poetically. It, it, it is this moment, right? In it is this event that is at, at the same time the most awful thing that has ever happened and the best thing that has ever happened. And I think mm-hmm. that scripture very much embraces that paradox. Because glory, I think the main theme in glory is revelation, meaning showing yourself, showing who you really are. So in this moment, God really displays who he is and his love uh, and his faithfulness to people. But there's also an aspect of honor, right? Because as, as God reveals himself, he ought to be honored by it. People ought to recognize how wonderful and perfect he is. But at the same moment that this is happening, that God is revealing himself, Jesus is being treated like the worst of criminals um, and being abused and being shamed, at least in the eyes of the world, right? Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it is this moment that is both end, that is that is at least deeply humiliating from a worldly standpoint, but uh, deeply glorifying if you if you understand the real sacrifice that is going on there
0: so it's a seeming contradiction or paradox that almost depends on the perspective from which you look at it
1: yes i think so um absolutely i think that that's a good way of putting it um but but at the same time i think that there is something truly evil going on and something truly good going on right like the people who are crucifying jesus are in fact doing something truly evil But Jesus submitting to this terrible situation to save all people is truly good. Um, So both are going on at once.
0: All right, thanks for the explanation. Gilgamesh, you're up first if you'd like to chime in. Yeah,
3: I wanted to, um, this goes back to like what Kanye West said on Alex Jones' show. He said, I love everybody, including the people trying to cancel me, take everything. And he said he loved Hitler. Well, that goes back to Jesus. He loved everyone. And I mentioned this to people. If Jesus were alive today, he would say he loved Hitler because that's who he was. He was about love, not hate or anger, but everybody had a path to heaven. Everybody had a chance to redeem themselves and get even Hitler had a, had a chance to get into heaven. And Jesse Lee Peterson pointed this out, too, that God and Jesus are about love. They're not about anger or hate. And when you mention this, some people go, oh, you're, there's a special place in hell for you for saying that Jesus would love Hitler, too, the same as he loved everyone. And that's why he never hated the Jews for crucify, having him crucified, or the Romans, or a Jews Iscariot, or even told his disciples to forsake him because he didn't want anything to happen to them. That's why he said, deny, I, deny me, because he wanted them to live. And that's why he was all about, like he said, love thy enemy as you love your neighbor. I, you know, that, yeah, even the worst person in the world has a chance to get into heaven as long as they repent and they say that they have God in their heart and Jesus is their savior, they can get into heaven. There's, you know, that's why they call it, you know, the whole idea of, you know, and it's like this whole thing, Merry Christmas, we're celebrating his birth not we know he wasn't born in December, but it's that idea that we're saying, okay, this day we're going to set aside for celebrating Jesus's birth, and that's why it's called Christ Mass because you're well, you know, going to church. You don't have to go to church to worship Jesus. It just you have to believe he, you know, he's your savior, you know, in the end, and you can get into heaven. And that's why when people say, oh, there's a special place, because how dare you say that, uh, that Jesus wouldn't say he loved him. And I said, yeah, that's exactly what Kanye's trying to do. He's saying exactly what Jesus, that message. And, of course, he got, you know, criticized for it. And people said, cancel him, cancel him, cancel him. He's not hating anyone. He's trying to do follow Jesus' path of he loves everyone. That's why he said, I love everyone, people trying to take everything from me, cancel me. I don't hate anyone. And, yes, I love Hitler. And so it's like, yeah, he's just following what, you know, what he's found by reading about, you know, becoming a Christian. That's why he's, you know, and so you see a lot of people that claim to be Christians getting it. And this is something somebody else said is that the good thing about what he did was he exposed a lot of people that claim to be Christian who aren't really Christians at all, who, you know, turned their back on him and said, good. And it's like, you do realize you're doing the same thing that happened with Jesus. You're crucifying him for something he says and believes, just like what, what the Jews wanted, you know, to happen to Jesus. And he's not hating these people. And it's like, yeah, you can actually understand what you know, what his message was. It's about accepting people no matter what. They even say we don't hate the Jews. You no, know, he doesn't, he doesn't hate anyone. So that's what you know, why the whole Kanye West, he said, you know, literally said nothing wrong and people need to realize what he was really saying is exactly that what Jesus was saying before he was crucified. Don't hate anyone. Love everyone. That's what God's all about. Love, not hate.
0: All right. Thanks for the thoughts. Uh, did, did you have uh, anything you wanted to add to that, Robert?
1: Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I, I suppose I, I want to agree in the sense that uh, the love God certainly loves everyone, Hitler included, as kind of a. What about especially stuff. Hitler? <laughs> yes, especially <laughs> Hitler. I didn't yeah. want to use that phrasing. Right, um, right. And I but, know that's not the point. I just, I have um, to. I
0: don't <laughs> want to get political. I just can't resist ah. the stupid reference. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh,
1: so yeah, no, I, I want to. That I mean, yes, God loves everyone, and and that's that. Of course, we're not going to get into everything else. Kanye of yeah. may have said or not or whatever. But that point is very much true. Everyone has a has a chance for redemption um and uh, yeah that and, in that regard that's very much true yeah.
0: all right thanks thanks gill
3: uh-huh. you have a good night you merry, as well. christmas. merry christmas thanks bye
0: chris you're good to go if you're ready
4: yeah thank you for the opportunity as always and thanks robert for the excellent study as always um my question has to do with i really liked the point that you brought up there kind of late in the study having to do with unity and the importance of it. Uh, and so I'm, my question for you is, do you have any thoughts on how we maintain unity?
1: Oh, I knew this would come up. because uh, <laughs> I, I kind of set myself up. I, I think I'm going to give you some general thoughts. But honestly, I think that this is something that should be discussed more often, because it is non optional right? Like this is not some denominational distinctive. Unity is a must. It is how we share the gospel. It is in the text. I mean, like I said, it's it's just not optional. So how do we do this? Um, I think part of it, actually to go back to that passage in Corinthians, is to see unity, we actually have to see a little bit of church discipline, which is something that we I've forgotten. And that's probably not the answer that you thought I would give and feel free here to push back. Um, but it, it's it's very hard to have unity if some of the people you're trying to be united with, uh, they only say these things, but then live in a completely different way. Uh, you just won't have cohesion there. Uh, so that's something that probably has to return to the church. Um, and there has to be a lot more grace and actual connection I think from a practical standpoint, if we don't really know each other, like if I don't know the people going to my church, how can I be united with them? I, I don't I don't know them. I mean, they, it's just from a practical standpoint, not possible. And then once we get into talking about different denominations and how can unity work there, oh my goodness, that's where it really gets tricky. Um, and I mean, I have some thoughts, but I don't really have any brilliant thoughts on that matter. So do you have any thoughts you would like to share?
4: Uh, just one, just, and basically just kind of, uh, building on what you said, you know, I think, uh, I I don't think that church discipline, to me, that's not even a controversial topic, right? Because it's scriptural. The, the other thing is, um, I, I think that unity comes from all of us abiding in the scripture, what the scriptures say, and, and usually that's where a lot of disagreements come from. Right. But it, it's kind of like, and I'll just give you one analogy um, that I heard years ago and I really like it. And it has to do with marriage. Like my wife and I, you know, one of the re- reasons that we have a successful marriage is we have a common definition of what marriage is. And, and so uh, in, in, our, in our definition of what marriage is, is also even grounded in the scripture. Right. So. Um, that I think that's the key, really, is is people just have to just keep abiding, abiding, abiding in the Scripture. You know, uh, being being transformed in the renewing of our mind, as opposed to being conformed by the world. the The world is is trying to pull us out of the truth. There, there's one truth, and there's infinitely many lies, right, on, on any topic. So the 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 key I think is just keep Going back to the scriptures and see what the scriptures say, and, and we and we can discuss just just exactly like you're facilitating here. We can just we can kind of dive in and, and sharpen each other and say, well, okay, what does this really mean, right? But but the place we're going to is the scriptures, and, and you're using that as the basis of everything. And I, I think that one thing is is probably the biggest uh, facilitator of unity is we just have to go look at what it said with, with, you know, intellectual honesty.
1: Yeah.
0: Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Merry Thank Christmas. You. Let's see. Uh, Denby's up next. Denby, go ahead.
5: Um, yeah, it's, uh, I'll try to make this quick so other people have some time. It's uh, just about the word uh, humiliation. And um, I think the problem there is that nowadays we generally have a, just a partial understanding of that word. Um, Because, of course, it's related to the word humility and humble. Um, So it's one thing if you humble yourself versus someone else humbling you justly or unjustly. You know, so, um, you know, to be on earth among us is to be humiliated in a way. You know, could be in heaven with his father, but he's on earth. You know, in the in the dirt and the dust, and you know, among the people, and and so, um, yeah. It's just one thing I wanted to add is that we we kind of have a partial understanding of that word now, and we tend to think of it as a negative thing. Someone was humiliated, but um, you know, uh, you know, it's it's a, you know, to, if someone is humble, it's a good thing. You know, so it's it's. Uh, it's kind of, I think, a, a perception problem. We 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 have a a meaning of the word that we've come to, kind of, it's come to be the dominant meaning. I think that's. Uh, I hope that helps. Anyway. Uh,
0: yeah, it's. Uh, I I certainly believe that uh, we as a society lack uh, the value of humility. And that we would we would be better to reacquaint ourselves with it, certainly. I guess what where I also get stuck is the application of that to Christ, though, too, because there's, well, there's certainly value in us reminding ourselves or even reminding each other that we're not that great, that we're not that good, that we have room for improvement, and thus humility is a, a value. Applied to Christ, that seems sort of like a contradiction too. Like like should he have the same reminder? that that we would that that he's not that great or something like that in that sense it still seems like a contradiction to me well
5: think of it this way is that you know part of this is he's taking on our sins to mm-hmm. pay for them for us so i mean and, you know so he you know that that you know being fully human then means that he connects he has to connect with with our flaws and our our you know our. our um, Short for shortcomings and so on, you know. So, I think that's that's another part of it. So, you know, like, um, again, like that's like, um, like was said earlier from you know, the quote from Tom Holland, like the you know, the Greeks and the Romans would not have understood this this idea of you know, like, you know, they're you know, their pe- their their they're gods are above and beyond us, you know, they're, they're, you know there's there's they don't. You know, even their even their weaknesses are beyond reproach in a way. You know, like the Greek gods sleep around, but you know, I mean, they're the gods, so you know. Yeah. They don't really care if we're like, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. Or... Sure. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I appreciate
0: part. the insight on uh, on that uh, issue, Robert. Did you have any thoughts you want to add to that?
1: I think uh, no. I think that that was. That was great. Uh, The passage that comes to mind is in Philippians 2, and that's probably what David was thinking about, so he probably just didn't, like, read it word for word. But it says, um, um, uh, Christ, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. So there certainly is this act of humility, and I'm going to, not humiliation, but humility into even just becoming man that Christ has done, and then there's this further act of humility into allowing Himself to be humiliated by the world, right? At least in the eyes of the world, like they've beaten Him, they've tortured Him, they've they've just shamed Him. Uh, so, yeah, the idea of having a humble God is is uh, you know it yeah it seems paradoxical. Unless I think you factor the idea of God being loving, that God is so loving that he would be willing to be humble, Uh, and that really emphasizes that love.
0: We do have two more requests to speak. We're right up against the top of the hour. I can stick around for a couple of extra minutes if you can. All right. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, Denby. Merry Christmas.
5: Merry Christmas.
0: Yeah. Uh, Garrick, go ahead if you're ready.
6: Hey, guys, uh, I was just going to further comment on your question, Matt, and kind of build on what Robert was just building here or talking about here. Um, As far as the humility and the glorification of God through Jesus, uh, the way that Catholic catechism kind of spells it out for us is that, um, let's see how I can say this right. Uh, It's he saves everyone through his humility. So he puts himself on the level of everyone, which is to say, low. So everybody, from lowborn to highborn, rich, uh, uh, sick to well, everyone gets saved through God or through Jesus, and that's his his glory glorification is through his loving sacrifice for us to save all of humanity. If that makes any sense
0: yeah thanks for the thought uh robert did you have any thoughts on that
1: no i think that's perfect it's pretty much straight out of hebrews um it uh, let me quote this i actually had it in the blog therefore since the children share in flesh and blood uh, he likewise shared in their humanity so that through death he could destroy the one who holds the power of death that is the devil to free those who were held in slavery all their lives by their fear of death for surely his concern is not for angels for, for but for, He is concerned for Abraham's descendants. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in things relating to God. So there's that idea. He had to become like us, that he might help us.
0: Thanks, Garrick. Okay. Merry Christmas, guys. Merry Christmas. And Brian, uh, you're good to go if you wanted to speak as well.
7: Yeah, it's. I just wanted to address the, the humiliation deal. Um, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't have much of uh, anything profound to add beyond what everybody else has said. It's just, it, it's not so much that he needed to be taken down a notch or needed an ego check the way that we would when when we're humbled. It's more that that even becoming human and, uh, but especially submitting to death is just so far beneath his dignity. That it uh, that it constituted a, a humiliation of sorts, but not that it not humiliation in the sense that we would experience, where it where it lessens our dignity. His dignity shows out all the more because of the uh, how far beneath him it was to endure these things. But anyway, that that I, I didn't have a complete thought, but just some some half formed thoughts there to address that. But, uh, yeah, that's all I got.
0: Yeah. I, I appreciate that. The, the, the more people speak about this, the more I understand it as sort of a, a willful submission, uh, obviously a sacrifice of self, of course, that is the story, but not the same thing as just any one of us being too cocky walking around and thinking we're so awesome and then someone beats us at the game that we're supposedly so great at or something like that. It's uh I
7: would recommend uh
0: read just read Philippians 2.
7: There's a, there's an ancient hymn there. Hmm. Um it's pretty cool for historical reasons, like it preserves a really early Christian hymn that get tells you what they believed about Jesus like even before the the epistles were written, but it also addresses your your questions about Christ's humiliation. Hmm. Um I don't have it, I don't know off, off the top of my head, but if you just look up Philippians
0: too, it it'll, it'll tell you everything you need to know. Okay. Well, thank you, Brian. And Merry Christmas to you and your family. Thank you. Uh, you okay. That will do it on speakers tonight. Thanks everybody for your participation. Robert, did you have any um, closing thoughts before we're finished?
1: No, just um, Merry Christmas to everyone. Um, you know, uh, maybe since we've been going through this bible study think about the reason for the season i don't mean to sound cheesy or whatever but it's true uh, <laughs> and um when we come back you know uh, effectively three saturdays from now we're actually going to move into the passion narrative so this break right now works perfectly i couldn't have timed it any better that hmm. pretty much the story has come to this great breaking point and when we pick up again it's going to be a whole different thing
0: all right well we will resume the story on january 7th as usual 8 p.m eastern time thanks everybody for making the bible study a success in its first year of operation here i appreciate that and as a reminder um, if you missed any part of the study or maybe you listened to the study on demand if you'd like to get in touch with robert or get in touch with me while we're on break or you just uh would like to catch up on a piece of the lesson that maybe you missed Uh, Over the course of the last uh, six, seven months or so, or however long we've been doing it, Bible study page of the website is where you can do all of that. So look for it on the homepage, com, or just go to slash Bible-study on the site, and you'll find it there. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and we will catch you all back on the 7th. Thanks.